Welcome back to another installment of the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. This is Worldview Wednesday. It's passed down as a prophecy every year about this time. Our host for today's episode is Ryan Eras. Welcome back to another episode of the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. I'm Ryan Eras and this week's podcast is going to be a little different than our, our usual format. I'm here alone in the studio today because Joe Boot and Nathan Oblak have gone to the U.S. Uh, they were at the Fight, Laugh, Feast rally, as well as meeting with some friends at Founders Ministries down in Florida, and we're looking forward to having them back. So today, we've got a, a recent lecture that Dr. Boot gave to Regent University on the subject of social justice and economics. I hope you enjoy it, and we'll be back next week for a regular installment of Worldview Wednesday. It's a joy for me to welcome the Reverend Dr. Joe Boot. Well, thank you so much, uh, Professor Schwartzwalder. Uh, it's a real uh, privilege for me to uh, be able to join you uh, live today uh, from the Ezra Institute in, in Canada. We're just uh, literally over the border from you, actually, uh, Niagara Falls. We're about uh, 25 minutes from Niagara Falls, uh, very close to the U.S. border on something that we call the Niagara Peninsula. That's the location of the Ezra Institute. And um, I want to thank um, Professor Schwartzwalder for that very warm and very kind uh, introduction. It really is a joy for me to be able to uh, have the chance to um, address you today and then to be able to take some questions shortly. The, the topic I've been um, uh, given today and that we're going to be looking at is scripture, welfare, and economic reality. I think um, uh, the way we, we advertise this was, uh, was a question about whether socialism was biblical. So we're going to be touching on the issues of, and the questions of social justice um, and a scriptural view of economic reality. So to begin with, um, I want to first address the religious foundations of economics. As, um, as Professor Schwarzwalder said, my, my area, my discipline has been cultural theology and philosophy and Christian apologetics. I'm not an economist um, by uh, training, but uh, in reflecting on scripture as it relates to all the aspects of cultural life, economics is an important one and has interested me for many years um, and um, has uh, taken up a considerable amount of my attention in some of my writing. So the religious foundation of economics first. In, uh, in every area of uh, life, faith is the determining factor for the direction of our thinking uh, and our activity. It's not only Christians actually who have recognized the importance of faith as the foundation for our thinking. Even radical atheists like the French philosopher Jacques Derrida have perceived the universality of faith in the life of human society, including the area of economics. This is what Derrida said, there is no society without faith, without trust in the other. Even on the economic level, there is no society without this faith, this minimal act of faith. What one calls credit in capitalism, in economics, has to do with faith, and the economists know that, end quote. So the great question of life finally comes down to where we place the faith of our hearts, where we place the faith of our hearts. Ultimately, we will place our faith in the creator of all things and his word of truth or in something that is created. We'll place our faith in the creator and his word of truth or something that is created. Now, you will all be aware that on American coinage, uh, from about 1864, had the words, in God we trust, imprinted on it. In God we trust. This, uh, this imprint <clears throat> from the early years of the United States raises an important question. Will God be our trust or will we place that trust elsewhere, perhaps placing our trust in money itself? 
It follows that people will orient the purpose and direction of their lives, including their economic life, around their heart faith, where they have placed that trust. I would put it as strongly as this, that all of life is religion. Uh, and culture, including our economic life, is the public manifestation of our faith. And that's why scripture says to us, above all else, guard your hearts, for it affects everything you do. Or it is, some translations say, the wellspring of life. Now, in the Christian faith and worldview, if we go back to the basics, human beings were created by God for a purpose, to be his image bearers to all creation by exercising servant rule in the earth, turning creation by faithful cultural work into the kingdom of God. Let me say that again. We're to be his image bearers to all creation, exercising servant rule in the earth, turning creation by faithful cultural work into the kingdom of God. In other words, the image of God in the human person is not a structural idea so much as it is a directional idea. It refers to the network of religious relationships which constitutes the framework for covenantal obedience. Sometimes we ask ourselves, you know, which bit of me is the image of God? Is it my soul? Is it my reason? And so on. But actually, the idea of imaging God in scripture is a directional, not a structural idea. It's will we live in obedience or disobedience? At the foundation of our faith is the truth that the living God calls us to serve him. Theologians, cultural theologians talk about this idea uh, in terms of the specific calling of human beings that we have been made vice gerents or some would say vice regents in the earth. When people lose sight of their God-centered and kingdom-oriented calling, human life soon becomes radically distorted and our work and thereby our economic life is turned toward idolatrous frustrating and empty purposes. So we can say, I think, that uh, that provides us with a the basic religious foundation for our discussion. I want to go on now to a biblical view of money. Man was not originally created to experience economic futility. That outcome is part of the fall of humanity from their true estate. God granted all, uh, God created all things very good and set within creation an incalculable wealth and bounty of resources. Now clearly money, which is developed resources converted into currency, is not an end then in itself. Like everything else in this world, money is something that is an aspect of creation to be used for a particular purpose. Now, I'm not suggesting, of course, that God created paper currency, neither the British pound nor the American dollar. Uh, he didn't create coinage. That's cultural work that's taken parts of God's creation and through cultural work developed it. Culture and industry um, have developed the earth's resources. But he, God did create the plentiful resources of the earth, which through creative development, culture and industry have been turned into commodities and properties that can be monetized. So money is the turning of property in labor, in assets or commodities into currency for the sake of exchange. Now, for much of history, that currency was, in the good old days, was hard currency in precious metals like gold and silver. In simple terms, money represents, that is, it represents various forms of property, including property in labor, um, in currency for the sake of exchange, the exchange of commodities and assets. Now, because money or property and wealth are an aspect of creation, we can say at the outset that money is a positive good. It's the turning into a, a currency for the sake of exchange, the resources that God has placed in creation, which means it's a positive good. It's useful. It's a blessing from God. 
Problems come in, though, when it's elevated above its proper place and intended purpose, as any other aspect of creation can be. It can be absolutized. It can become an idol. It can become a false god. Where the creation, and in this case the economic aspect of creation, is given an all-important and defining role, it's worshipped, in other words, instead of the creator, what we have is a disharmony of interest entering into the creation, destroying God's shalom. A disharmony of interest entering creation and destroying God's shalom. This is the way Calvin put it in his commentary on, in, on the book of Matthew, Matthew 6, 24. He says, and I quote, where riches hold the dominion of the heart, God has lost his authority. Whoever gives himself up as a slave to riches must abandon the service of God for covetousness makes us slaves of the devil, end quote. Now, of course, we all know that Jesus famously said we cannot serve both God and money, but we can serve God with our money. Christians all too often have neglected careful thought about this aspect of their lives. Yet, like every other sphere of life, the economic aspect is governed by religious assumptions. We will either be governed by God's word revelation or we will have our economic values defined by another religious principle. That might be capitalistic, Marxist, collectivist. It might be purely profit-driven assumptions. But we need to have biblically-driven understanding and assumptions. And this, of course, is an area of life that involves all of us. We're all involved continuously in the economic aspect of life. That's not to say that we're all directly involved in the scientific study of economics or the teaching of economics. It simply is to recognize that every part of life in the created order has an economic aspect so that it is inescapable. For example, we all need to earn a living. That's one of the immediate economic aspects of our work. We have bills to pay. We have budgets to keep. We've got books to balance. We have goods to buy. We have children to fund. We have debts to pay. We have transport to arrange, gas tanks to fill, retirement to save for, health to pay for, and on and on and on. In fact, all the apportioning of our time in life has economic implications. Everything in life has a certain value in God's economy, and lots of things have a specific fluctuating cost that is associated with them. Economic realities are actually all around us, so none of us can get away from these questions or avoid the economic aspect of our lives any more than we can avoid the ethical or biological aspects of life. Take today, for example, uh, you have given up time where perhaps you could have been doing a part-time job. I'm giving up some of my time investing some of my time, so is Professor Schwarzwalder. Uh, there is the technology that costs money to allow this event to happen. Um, and there is an exchange of currency for services rendered, or at least I hope there's gonna be. So these are the things that uh, constantly surround us in every aspect of our lives. So money uh, is a God-created thing, but the issue is how we put it into service. So let's talk thirdly about God's norms for economic life. God's norms for economic life. How do we begin to think Christianly about economic life? Well, I've said that to creation, human beings were assigned a stewardship of all God's resources. The starting point for thinking about a Christian view of economic matters is thus to be reminded, as Psalm 24, 1 reminds us, that the earth is the Lord's, and everything in it. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. We are stewards. We are not ultimate owners. We are, in an important sense, trustees who administrate God's resources for the benefit not merely of ourselves, but for the benefit of others. This calling entrusted to us by God to develop the wealth of the earth for his kingdom purposes is actually what gives us a goal in our economic life beyond the mere accumulation and hoarding of wealth for ourselves. It has a kingdom orientation because we are stewards. 
As God's creatures, there is an important scriptural sense in which we are God's pupils in the development of the wealth of resources that he has placed in creation that I've also spoken about. There is a certain economics of creation that we learn by God's tutelage. Let me give you an example from Isaiah 28 verses 23 through 29. Listen to what we read there. Listen and hear my voice. Pay attention and hear what I say. Does the plowman plow every day to plant seed? Does he continuously break up and cultivate the soil when he has leveled its surface? Does he not then scatter black cumin and sow cumin? He plants wheat in rows and barley in plots with spelt as their border. His God teaches him order. He instructs him. Certainly black cumin is not threshed with a threshing board and a cartwheel is not rolled over cumin. But black cumin is beaten out with a stick and cumin with a rod. Bread grain is crushed, but is not threshed endlessly. Though the wheel of the farmer's cart rumbles, his horses do not crush it. This also comes from the Lord of hosts. He gives wonderful counsel. He gives great wisdom, end quote. It's an unusual text of scripture uh, because when we say, when we ask questions about economic life or we ask questions, for example, about farming, it's not as simple as to say, well, let's just turn to the relevant Bible passage about farming and um, the farmer's got his handbook for agriculture. Rather, there is a stewardship, a study of creation where God teaches us. Here, the farmer who is concerned with economic reality or norms is a student of God and his creation law. Plowing, sowing, and harvesting requires understanding the objects God has made and their distinct nature. God, by his will, perpetuates the distinct nature of things that he has created, and thereby he makes it possible for the world to continue with regularity in terms of creational distinctions. These distinctions and regularity are what makes economic life actually possible. For example, a farmer could not have or develop a farming business if he did not understand creational regularity, have confidence in it, and be able to plan in terms of the type of seed to plant, the time of harvest, and the kind of harvesting methods required to be fruitful. The relative ease of the tasks associated with cultivating different crops and the relative scarcity of the various seeds in the face of the differential demand are going to be factors in the value or price of the crops. The uh, Dutch theologian Klaus Schilder said in regard to this passage in Isaiah, he said, this farmer is a student of his God. He reads the regulations of this God. His ability to read allows the king and the beggar to live from the field. They both profit from the apprenticeship of the farmer. And in a broader sense, this law applies to all of life in society, also for technicians, etc., etc. So here, the farmer, the beggar, and the king all live from the field that is cultivated as man learns the norms and laws God has placed within creation. So when we think about economic life, it's not, it's not purely subjective. It's not purely to do with our preferences. It's not purely to do with social um, uh, ideas that have gained dominance. The Bible's clear that God has established laws and norms for every area of life. We are his students, we are his pupils, and we have a stewardship of everything that God owns and has created. So let's go on now to talk about the harmony of interests that I believe God has established for creation. What the creation and the tutelage of God in the life of man as his vicegerent presupposes is that God has actually established a harmony of interest as basic to his plan for human life. Now, the reality of a harmony of interest clearly existed in Eden. There was no economic conflict. There was no demands for social justice. It is also present in the life of the church. 
If you consider uh, 1 Corinthians 12, for example, verses 12 through 17, we, Paul uses the metaphor of the human body and shows the harmony of interest that exists in the body, even though we're made up of many different parts. It's actually the reality of heaven as well, that there is a harmony of interest, and it will be a harmony also in its totality in the renewed heaven and the renewed earth. There will be a harmony of interest within the renewed creation. Now, as Christians, of course, we know that there is a problem now uh, with respect to uh, what was the case in Eden, what is meant to be modeled in the church and what it will be true in the renewed earth. And that's the problem of sin. Sin has introduced greed, selfishness, covetousness, envy, theft, manipulation, extortion into human economic life. Larceny has entered into the heart of man. And so here, the intended harmony of interests in creation gets disrupted by sin. The atheist revolutionary Karl Marx sought to account for all human strife in terms of economic life. In the opening words of his Communist Manifesto, he claims that, and I quote, the history of all hitherto existing society is the history of the class struggles. The class struggles. He, by that, he meant economic classes, although he never did get around to defining what a class actually is. But it is certainly entrenched within the modern political landscape and the practice of scapegoating certain abstract groups for all the ills of the world. Scripturally, however, the history of all human society is not class warfare, but an ethical warfare against God and his law, as we see in James chapter 4. It's within this context where God is bringing all things into judgment towards salvation or condemnation. So human history is actually the unfolding of God's covenant and kingdom in the earth. Not, not class struggle, it's the unfolding of his kingdom in the earth, which is to say that human history is God-centered, not man-centered, as it was for uh, Karl Marx. The, Christian, the calling of the Christian then in the midst of the introdu introduction of disharmony is to pursue a kingdom harmony of interests in all of life. Since all things are being reconciled to Christ, that's clear from what Paul says in Colossians 1.20 uh, following and Ephesians 2, we must seek to extend the reality of God's reconciling power by our obedience to his word as faithful students of the Lord, reducing the effects of sin-driven disharmony of interest. And in that task, we're not left without scriptural resources. So I'm saying that on the one hand, we have, because of sin, a direction that pushes towards a disharmony of interest, of conflict, of struggle, uh, of perpetual revolution. And on the other, we have the drive towards a harmony of interests. So that's the kingdom principle. And there's an antithesis there. And the Bible gives us scriptural resources to address it. The book of Proverbs, for example, is a practical application of God's wisdom and instruction to various areas of life and has much to say about wealth and economic reality. It tells us that the acquisition of wealth by sinful means will go sour and is of no value. Proverbs 10.2. We learn that diligence brings wealth and that such earnings aid the life of the righteous. Proverbs 10.4, Proverbs 10.16. I'm going to give you a few scriptures just so you know I'm not talking out of the top of my head. We also learn that wealth is God's blessing, not to be despised, and he adds no trouble with it. Proverbs 10.22. Hoarding wealth is condemned, but giving to others can lead to great gain and much blessing. Proverbs 11, 26, 11, uh, uh, sorry, Proverbs 11, 24 through 26. The steady building of wealth by hard work and planning is better and more prudent than speculating, typically making our assets grow more effectively. Proverbs 12, 11 and 13, 11. Interestingly, David Hall argues that 
Calvinists during and after the Reformation use these specific texts, some of the ones I've just cited to you, to inform their business practices and corporate culture. And as a result, wealth development followed. The hardworking poor can also see an abundance according to scripture, Proverbs 13, 23. Godly people will seek to leave their children's children an inheritance, Proverbs 13, 22. All useful work brings some kind of profit, Proverbs 14, 23 through 24, while laziness is folly. Same passage, Proverbs 14. At the same time, exhausting oneself simply for the pursuit of riches in themselves is futile. Proverbs 23, verses 4 through 5. And oppressing the poor to increase one's wealth is morally reprehensible. Proverbs 22, 16. So you can look at some of those passages and uh, uh, pour over them and uh, get a sense of some of the practical guidance that we get in scripture with respect to the use of our wealth. Wealth then, as I've said, is a positive good and wealth building is an important part of life. Think about many of God's choicest servants in the Bible. They were often people of considerable wealth. Abraham, uh, Solomon, Job, Jacob, Joseph, King David, the women who funded Jesus' ministry, Barnabas, who donated family lands in the cause of the gospel, Nicodemus, and Joseph of Arimathea, who, of course, uh, provided the, the tomb of, uh, of a wealthy person for the Lord Jesus. Mary and Martha were able to use their large homes for church meetings, as well as many, many more. Those are just a few illustrations. Wealth calls forth in us then the task of stewardship and godly administration, generosity and service. So wealth building uh, involves being God's student, like the farmer, and expressing our God-given creativity to develop the potentials God has placed in creation. And so I would go as far as to say that the creation of wealth is a scriptural mandate. No one is without property because the most basic kind of property we have is in our own creative labor. You don't need to be a landowner to have property because you have property in your creative labor. This is the foundation of all other kinds of property that accrues to individuals and families. And as such, it is inviolable. David Hall, uh, who's written on this subject, has rightly argued that scripturally, and I quote, the ideal is an economic, legal, cultural environment that encourages creation, values creation, protects the benefits and rewards of creation, and allows the marketplace to judge the appropriateness and validity of the creation methodology. That's probably worth hearing again. The ideal is an economic, legal, cultural environment that encourages creation, values creation, protects the benefits and rewards of creation, and allows the marketplace to judge the appropriateness and validity of the creation methodology. Now, if you deny that, it is we actually end up denying the right to private property, which is presupposed and protected by God in the commandment, thou shalt not steal. For property, whether it's physical property or intellectual property or otherwise, to be stolen and become an asset of the state is violence and theft and a serious violation of God-given human freedom. This is true not only by virtue of man's creation in God's image, as a free creator, but in view of the biblical revelation of redemption. And this is really important. So I want you to pay attention to this. We cannot use wealth redemptively as individuals and as families if it's owned by the socialist state, standing in for God as the absolute owner of everything. Remember, we are not absolute owners. We are stewards and administrators of God's property. 
So a biblical view of economics factors in not only God's original harmony of interests in creation, it doesn't only factor in the fall of man into envy, envy, covetousness, and greed, but also it factors in the redemption of man and the restoration of the harmony of interests. Here, redemption triumphs over rebellion, and a harmony of interests is steadily restored as we uh, take a biblical view. For biblical economics, salvation is not restricted to the soul, but concerns a person's entire being, including their property, beginning with their work and service. In Christ, all our assets are redeemed and to be put to a godly use. It is not states that God saves and reconciles to the Father, but people who are then put who are then to put their resources to a godly use. There's a beautiful illustration in scripture, actually, that Christ himself is our kinsman redeemer. This is illustrated in the book of Ruth for us. In keeping with Leviticus 25, 25 following, he buys us back that we might serve him and then inherit all things in Jesus Christ. We are joint heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. So he is our kinsman redeemer who buys us back so that we might serve him and inherit all things. In other words, we are set free in Christ and released from our debts. This is part of the, uh, if you will, the economic imagery of the gospel, released from our debts to be stewards and faithful servants. We are therefore to put our wealth to redemptive uses by building it and releasing it for God's kingdom purposes in our families, churches, institutions, charities, and more for the glory of God as a redeemed people. We put our wealth to redemptive uses in the pursuit of the renewal of a harmony of interest in the earth. So let me come to a fairly direct application of those broad biblical principles. Let me talk now about, fifthly, a freed life, we've been bought back, and a free market. A freed life and a free market. Personal freedom, uh, as you uh, know, as Americans, I hope, has has always been a, a deep concern of the Christian faith. Personal freedom. Freedom to serve God. That's the concern of the Bible. Freedom is not, um, freedom must of course be to some purpose, free from what to be what. So in biblical terms, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. In fact, Jesus tells us, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. We are liberated, we're freed to serve God and his kingdom purpose. It's not anarchistic freedom, it's directed freedom. In the thought of the Reformation, This freedom was enhanced and expressed in the marketplace for workers, for investors, for owners. God has clearly ordained markets and institutions that restrain disharmony and promote the harmony of interests. Uh, The the market is presupposed in the idea of just weights and measures that God talks about in his law and the family as well as the church and the state, all play a role in restraining a disharmony of interests. A free market is one such institution. The free market promotes cooperation and creative activity that works to the benefit of all when it is truly free. Now, we need to be careful that we don't misunderstand this. Perfect equity is not possible in life with the presence of sin. There is never gonna be perfect justice in human life uh, when sin is present. And equity does not mean equality. Absolute equality is not a goal of the Bible. It's not a Christian goal. You won't find the ideal of absolute equality in Jesus' parables about the kingdom, in Jesus' parables about the manager, in Jesus' parables about the stewards, Uh, who are given differing amounts of treasure to utilize. In fact, in the kingdom of God, we are told explicitly 
that uh, some will be saved as through fire and their works will be burned up and others will receive great rewards. So even in the kingdom of heaven, there is no egalitarian, equalitarian agenda. Equity here, I mean, implies justice and there is no perfect justice in uh, a sinful world. But the institutions that God's established are there to try and reduce injustice and disharmony. A free market is, in the economic sphere, the most important institution arising from the application of God's word in society. It helps to reduce the disharmony of interest due to sin by encouraging people to voluntarily cooperate together, collaborate, and mesh their individual plans by means of personal ownership of private property, freely fluctuating prices, and then clear and honest profit and loss statements. Where there is a free market, workers, investors, and business owners all benefit. Such a market where interference is at a bare minimum requires, of course, an honest currency. That's what the Bible means by just weights and measures. The facilitation of the free exchange of goods and incentive to participate in this uh, market in the form of profits. Legal protection is then required so that people are not punished for the development of their products and their profits. Now, I want to be clear, though, at the same time, that the free market is not identical with capitalism. Capitalism. Some modern capitalism, and I want to suggest to you that whenever you see an ism on the end of a word, um, uh, reflect carefully on whether what we're seeing is a well-created part of God's creation being elevated and exaggerated beyond its God-ordained function. That's usually what's going on when you see an ism. Capital is good, but some modern capitalism with its subsidies, with its state interventionism, and with its purely aggressive profit-driven motive erodes the freedom of ordinary people. I found it fascinating actually to note that many of the most wealthy corporate leaders today favor socialism and interventionism, not a free market, not a free market. The motive of this is actually statist protection. So a lot of modern capitalism is not about a free market. It's often about statist protect protection. All too often, big corporations and banks are what they are because they have become cozy with big government. Furthermore, much modern capitalism in our time is concerned not with a harmony of interest and freedom, not just currency and honest money, but purely with profit, anything for a profit. We've got a real battle on today with a struggle against dishonest money. We've got fiat currency constantly being pumped into the economy, which is devaluing honest people's savings because money is becoming cheaper. So we've got a problem with dishonest money. A Christian approach to economics favors above all else economic freedom. But if profit is isolated from the broader worldview, of an honest and free exchange of honest money. Eventually, profit is eroded and destroyed as well. So profit is only one benefit of economic freedom. Since Jesus Christ is Lord and he is the absolute owner of all things, he's created all things so that certain activities are blessed and benefited while others are fruitless or penalized. Let me give you an example. As Christians, bringing tithes and offerings to God is a source of blessing, according to the Bible. Uh, not to tithe, actually, in Scripture, is to rob God and to come under his judgment. Tithing is a recognition that God is absolute owner and we are stewards of his trust. The tithe is actually the tax of the kingdom of God for the advancement of his purposes. So there's just one illustration uh, of Christ as the absolute owner of all things and where he blesses certain economic activities and curses others. By contrast, I've given you the illustration of bad money, the reality of inflation, 
when all this bad money is pumped into the economy, is God's judgment on the economic order as a law sphere that's governed by his word. A massive debt culture is historically shown to be an inflationary, boom-bust culture because the economic aspect of life is a sphere of law that God rules and judges. Sometimes I think we don't really believe that God rules over the economic aspect of life and that his law governs. The government of economic life is ultimately in the hands of God. So a market can only be free when it's bound by God's law, which demands truth, fairness, and justice. Without this law, man tries to manipulate markets to his own advantage. We've seen quite a lot of fun and games, uh, which aren't really fun and games in that regard, recently with um, shorting the market and so on. Without this law, man tries to manipulate markets then and gain an advantage over others unjustly. Supply and demand, though, are not legislated by the state in a free market, but are a given order in God-ordained reality. And this is, of course, the problem with any idea of a managed economy and price fixing. In the end, it leads to poverty. If we do not believe in God and his law order over all things, we will not really believe in freedom. If we don't believe in God and his law order, we will not really believe in freedom. It's then that we will demand a new God intervene in things to govern the economic sphere in God's place. The favored God of modern society is the state. People blindly believe in the omnicompetence of the, of the state to envelop and control every sphere of life. As it does so, it starts to make people slaves of a new idol. But freedom is not a state grant, according to the Bible. That's not the Christian view. Freedom is found under God alone. The battle for freedom in economic life is just one of many battles going on for freedom today for the Christian. It's only by living in terms of God's word to us that we can see the freedom of the kingdom with its harmony of interests, its righteousness and justice prosper in the days ahead. Let me start to uh, begin to draw my thoughts to a conclusion by now talking about biblical justice and welfare in light of what I've just said. Scripture makes clear that this kingdom power at work in the life of believers pursuing a harmony of interests does not end with our love for God. That is just our love for God alone, but embraces love for neighbor also. And our love of our neighbors actually proves our love for God genuine. That's what Romans 13, eight through 10 makes plain. So to work for justice, to aid the poor and the needy through clearly, the, the, so let me say that again, to work for justice, to aid the poor and the needy, whilst it's distinguishable in principle from proclaiming the redemption of Christ in the cross, we mustn't artificially separate that from the gospel of love for God. In the same way that faith without works is dead, so words without relationship to live deeds are empty, just as deeds without relationship to word, that is meaning, are mute. Now that doesn't mean that word and deed must always come together in some artificial mechanical way to be authentic. It simply means that in our lives as believers, our deeds and our witness to the gospel of the kingdom have to be consistent in every aspect of our lives. Now, from the biblical standpoint, either God's justice regarding money or human imagination about justice will govern our social relationships. Consequently, attempts to define economic justice apart from God's word quickly lead to autonomous, rationalistic economic theories and relativism. Social laws are then reduced to social beliefs that have triumphed and have little or no connection with true biblical justice. In other words, for biblical faith, justice is something that is revealed by God, that is basic to his character and true and triune nature, which is all personal and all relational grounded in love. Now in the Older Testament, a just person 
is a righteous person who does what is right in accordance with God's revealed law. You can see that in Ezekiel chapter 18, verses five through nine. A just person is a righteous person who does what is right in accordance with God's revealed word. Likewise, in the New Testament, the Greek word uh, dikasini can be legitimately translated as righteousness or justice. So you could adequately translate Matthew, 6, Matthew 5, 6, as, uh, which refers to the, uh, the blessed ones who hunger and thirst after righteousness, as hunger and thirsting for righteousness or justice. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice. Equally, Matthew 6, 33, using the same word in the Greek, exhorts us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness or justice. They could be translated either way, to seek first his justice. So what is the biblical conception of justice that we are supposed to pursue when it, become, when it concerns the, specifically the economic aspect of our lives? Well, the biblical concept of justice is literally this, rendering impartially and proportionally to everyone his due in accordance with the righteous standards of God's moral law. Justice in the biblical view, I'll say that again, is rendering impartially and proportionally to everyone his due in accordance with the righteous standard of God's moral law. Justice then essentially implies ensuring a person receives his or her due. If they've not received it, an injustice has occurred. Paul in Romans 13, 7 clearly tells us, render to all their due. Now in scripture, what is due to a person is determined sometimes by who the person is. So our parents, uh, are required, we're required to honor our parents. We're required to respect governing authorities. We're, we're supposed to respect our leaders. At other times, what is due to a person is in terms of what they do. Elders in the church who rule well, for example, or in criminal matters, murderers and criminals are dealt with in terms of what they do against persons and property. You can see that in the case laws of Exodus 21 and 22. So basically the biblical idea of justice, the juridical aspect is tribution, to render to people their due. That's the scriptural idea. Now let's, so I want in view of that to compare and contrast a little bit here, the idea, the popular idea today of social justice um, as human welfare and the scriptural view of human welfare. So in spite of this uh, diversity of justice issues, when the Bible talks about tribution, it has a number of areas of, of, of life in mind. Uh, many Christians, when we talk about the struggle for justice today, almost always have a narrow distributive justice in mind, a very narrow distributive justice in mind. This distributive justice is usually called social justice. The philosopher Ronald Nash notes, and I quote, social justice is viewed as that species of distributive justice concerned with the distribution of burdens and benefits within society as a whole, a distribution that is usually controlled by political authorities, end quote. Now I wanna to suggest to you the controversial idea that, um, excuse me, that social justice on these terms has very limited connection to the biblical idea of, ju of justice. Social justice claims to be essentially democracy, equality. Democracy, as you know, is demos, people, kratos, power, people, power. It claims to be a democratic equality. And it usually involves today a victimization scheme where we blame a bad environment or certain groups or classes within society for all the injustice and economic inequality because of unjust social and political structures that are perpetuated by the powerful and oppressive. Now, the Bible does recognize that there can be a sin within the structures of human society. In fact, it presupposes that there will be and we should oppose real injustice. But 
In this particular vision, this vision of social justice, everyone allegedly has an inalienable right as a matter of justice to an equal access to resources, to land, to education, to opportunity for betterment, sometimes even to marriage, a good job, an adequate income, as, as well as various welfare or social services, and increasingly, a right to a positive outcome in all of these endeavors. Now that uh, ever-expanding litany of demands doesn't define justice. What it does is it presents a modern doctrine of entitlements. It's a modern doctrine of entitlements. And it has to be asked, for example, whatever the mer merits of, take for example, universal state education or universal state welfare services, what that has to do with being just and or righteous and giving a person what they are morally due in terms of scripture, in terms of the word of God. And I think that highlights actually the difference between biblical justice that deals with negative rights and today's social justice that offers inherently impossible positive rights. What do I mean by that? Well, negative rights means that we have a conditional right to certain protection. For example, in one sense, we can say that each person has a right to life. And we believe in protecting life as Christians. But that is a right, in our view, not to be murdered, not to be unjustly harmed as a being made in God's image. It is not an unconditional right to life. For example, if I am a serial killer, do I have a right to life? Take another example, which uh, may be more difficult. Uh, do I have a right to food? Do I have a right to food? Well, if it is my property, certainly I have a right to food. I have a right to go to my own fridge and take out the food that I have bought. I have a right not to be robbed according to the eighth commandment, thou shalt not steal. But if I am not willing to work, do I still have a right to food? Well, actually not according to the Apostle Paul, who says, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. 2 Thessalonians 3.10. Again, according to God's law, unless we want to use the truth to do evil, we have a right to the truth. You shall not bear false witness. But, do, but that does not give me a positive right to be called an honest person if I'm a liar. So you see the difference. Biblical rights are not guarantees that something will be provided for me by another person. But it guarantees that what is ours will not be unjustly taken from us. Thus rights are not positive but negative. And that's why the commandments of God are largely framed, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. Biblical negative rights are realistic. They are realizable. They're equal. They're universal. Whereas positive rights are not. Positive rights seek to equalize everything, that is resources, opportunities, outcomes, etc., which by definition is an impossibility. Think about this. The things that make us unequal in nearly all respects, a marvelous and beautiful diversity in human culture and experience, cannot be equalized. Beauty, for example, cannot be equalized. I will never be as good looking as Professor Schwarzwalder, and there's nothing I can do about that. Uh, beauty cannot be equalized. Intelligence cannot be equalized. Our parents and our family background cannot be equalized. The place and the time of our birth cannot be equalized. And yet many of those things determine to a certain degree, they shape to a certain degree, the kind of resources and opportunities that might be available to us. Equality is simply not in view in biblical justice because it is a term that belongs in the realm of mathematics, not anthropology. For example, to what extent could you say that two Americans equals two Frenchmen? I'm sure that may even be offensive to you. Uh, we can say that we're all human beings created in the image of God, 
but there are so many things that make us differ, and that makes life worth living. If it were possible to take IQ or beauty or physical strength, to take it from one person and distribute it to other people, for example, make a beautiful person less attractive by force, or lobotomize a highly intelligent person, would that be just? Would that be righteous? Social justice, you see, aims at creating interchangeable, indistinguishable human beings in a forced egalitarian world, making it incompatible with liberty, destroying charity, generosity, and essentially virtue, because you would not need to act justly in a, in a utopian world, because in this concept, that's enforced upon you. You are forced to follow the state's idea of justice, destroying ethics. Those who want to implement social justice then essentially want to play God, who the Bible says causes things and people to differ, that he makes one vessel for this purpose and another for that purpose. So social justice wants to play God by destroying distinctions and then denying providence. So biblical justice, by contrast, is about the restoration of God's order, not the creation of man's equalized utopia. The, uh, the very term equality really belongs in the realm of mathematics because we have the equal symbol, which is two parallel lines that equal one another. But there's no sense in which we can say that about two individuals. It's about then God's order, biblical justice, not the creation of man's utopian order. When we give voluntarily to the poor and the needy, we do so not by giving them what they are due, normative justice proper, but by an act of kindness and grace, when we give to those in need, we are giving God his due. We are giving God his due because that's what he requires. That's what he requires. Kindness, mercy, and love is basic to the law of God because the essence of God's justice is restitution. Ultimately, that is the restoration of his order and his purposes for creation. God's mission is actually to restore all things to their original beauty and goodness. But that original beauty and goodness didn't constitute absolute equality between Adam and Eve because they were made male and female, different degrees of strength, different appearance. And of course, we're living in a culture now which wants to destroy and eliminate even those that most basic distinction between male and female. Now, since this restoration of God's order is the goal of his justice, salvation and mercy and compassion are a necessary part of it. If righteousness is to reign in the world, redemption, love, and mercy are necessary. And thus the righteousness of God's law must reign in the Christian life, Isaiah 1:17. So in response to God's mercy, we obey his covenant law and show mercy. We cannot separate justice or mercy from the word of God. Now let me conclude by finishing by saying just a few things about economy, justice, and poverty. Given that equality is not the objective of God's order. When justice is truly concerned with God's righteous law in scripture, poverty is not the defining issue. It's not the defining issue that social justice advocates make it. Uh, neither is poverty seen as the worst thing to befall a person. Proverbs 28, six says, Better a poor man who walks in his integrity than a rich man who is crooked in his ways. Now, interestingly, the goal of God's law is very explicit that if we obey it, the Bible says, there shall be no poor among you. That is, there'll be nobody begging. Doesn't mean everybody will be equal, but it does mean there will be no poor among you. Nonetheless, scripture says, better a poor man who walks in his integrity than a rich man who is crooked in his ways. What matters most then is integrity before God and a righteous life. On the other hand, if the liberal definition of justice is correct, that is this redistribution of wealth in terms of social justice, 
how can the poor themselves live righteously and do justice since they have no wealth to redistribute? Those, thing, those two things cannot be the same. Otherwise, the poor themselves could never live a righteous life. If justice is about economic redistribution, how can the poor be just beyond political agitation for themselves? The Bible tells us that it's by the gospel we are made rich in God, whatever our social or economic status. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. In fact, the Apostle Paul spoke of his own physical and economic poverty in the service of the gospel, as he says, making many rich. For though Christians face economic hardship as having nothing, yet we possess everything, according to 2 Corinthians 6.10. So for St. Paul, he says, covetousness is a snare, 1 Timothy 6.9. But, and I quote, there is great gain in godliness with contentment, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. That's 1 Timothy 6, 7. In addition, the biblical answer to man's sense of powerlessness is not social liberation by transfers of wealth. A man may be wealthy and exceedingly influential, yet impotent in his life. Just look at the celebrity culture of our time. The end result of all rebellion against God is frustration and powerlessness, no matter how much wealth you have. There is only one true source of power in the Bible, and Acts 1.8 tells us about it, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Rich or poor, we can be clothed with power from on high. And God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So when Christians preach Christ as the deliverer and the Holy Spirit as the source of life and power, we begin to, when we live out these realities, in other words, in our lives, it will be clearly seen, as the Apostle John says, that darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining, 1 John 2.8. Now, there is an overwhelming concern in Scripture for the poor, for the oppressed, and the Bible's emphatic about that. The overwhelming concern in Scripture is emphatic where tithes and offerings are given freely for the relief of the poor and the promise then of God's blessing for such godly living and his curse upon our neglect of that responsibility. It should not be state-sanctioned theft, however well-intentioned, by progressive taxation, windfall taxes, inheritance taxes, property taxes, where people's wealth is plundered for redistributive welfareism. That's the politics of covetousness, of envy, and of civil war. Rather, we are commanded by Christ to give freely to the needy without display and without hypocrisy in Matthew chapter six. And there is no indication in scripture that such uh, charitable giving out of love is paternalistic, or a participation in some sort of sinful political structure, or that true justice in society can ever totally eliminate the need for various forms of charity. That is because equalization is not the goal of biblical justice. Only if justice were defined as total communism can justice conceptually, though never in reality, eliminate charity in a fallen world. In fact, the Soviet Union did outlaw charity um, for many years as a rival form of government at the height of Soviet power. In the Decalogue, the prohibition against all forms of theft and covetousness, which clearly presupposes private property, property is found alongside the requirement of the tithe. There were three tithes in all, approximately adding up to about 15 to 18% of a person's annual income of which only one-tenth went to the priest for worship. So you had one-tenth of the tenth going to the priest for worship. The rest was set aside for education, so Christian education for your children, various forms of social provision, health and welfare provided through the Levites. That was the biblical model and that was what the early church followed. Thus, in biblical justice, to abandon God's word and means of provision for the needy, which is the tithe, 
and to replace it with statist justice and its provision through institutionalized robbery, state coercion, is profane and double theft from God. Let's just say, for example, just to illustrate that, that uh, we were all in the same room together today rather than on this infernal digital version of things. And um, we noticed that Professor Schwarzwalder comes into the room with a very thick and fat wallet. And we think to ourselves, well, hang on a second. Professor Schwarzwalder is obviously well remunerated. And here's me, a poor student with all of this debt. I'm going to take some of that uh, cash from his wallet and put it towards my education. Now, if we were to then ask the class after the, the lecture, uh, if we were to discover, I should say, that somebody in the lecture had helped themselves discreetly to the contents of Professor Schwarzwalder's wallet, the rest of us in the class would certainly view that as theft. We would say that's stealing, that's theft. We would condemn it, even if they had student debt. Why is it that when the state does it, then, we call it social justice? This is a problem. I close with these words from George Grant, who summarizes the issue well. The reason scripture is so specific about the implementation of charity is precisely due to the unique relationship of law and love. Biblical love is not naive, guilt-provoked sentiment. Biblical love is not a feeling. Biblical love is the compulsion to do things God's way living in obedience to his unchanging, unerring purposes. Biblical law is the encoded mercy, grace, and peace of God. It is love's standard. Thus, biblical law does not lock us into heartless, soulless exercises in social control. Love and law are inseparable, working in tandem to the glory of Christ and his kingdom. And when they are evidenced as such, the needs of the poor will be met by faithful adherence of authentic Christianity in word and deed. Thank you very much for listening. It's passed down as a prophecy every year about this time.